book of Nehemiah, as we continue on just traveling through God's word here from Genesis to Revelation and just really taking each book from an aerial view, getting a a bird's eye view, soaring through scripture from 30,000 feet, really just kind of getting the big picture of what's going on. And uh, the book of Nehemiah is such a, a, a fun book to spend some time in here. It's a great book on, on spiritual leadership, really just leadership in general, as we'll see here from Nehemiah, some of the things that he does. Now, the book of Nehemiah, it picks up right where we left off last week in the book of Ezra. Book of Ezra ends... And then we flow right into the book of, of Nehemiah. In fact, right up until about 1448, these two books were seen as one book in the Jewish Bible. They were just kind of there together, just flowing through the chronology of what was going on. And so here now we have them, two separate books as they're detailing, you know, a couple separate individual events being led by individual people. So this is, again, detailing a time uh, in Israel's history, this period of time where it's this post-captivity period in Israel's history where they've been captive in Babylon and now they've been released from Babylon where they're going back to um, their place in Judah and in Jerusalem. Remember, Babylon has been kind of that, that world empire at the time but then was overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire under the reign of Cyrus, and it was Cyrus that comes in now and says, listen, we don't need all these captives here with us in this land. They're free to go back. And so under Cyrus's reign, as was prophesied 150 years earlier by Isaiah, that this man Cyrus would come on the scene. And so Cyrus allows the people to return back to their homeland. Remember, there were those three, three ways or three groups of, of exiles that returned at three uh, distinct times, first of all under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who brings a group of people back to Jerusalem where they rebuild the temple. The second group of people is under the leadership of Ezra, where they come back and it's really just reforming the people there. And then now this last group of people, this third group, is being led by Nehemiah, where the focus now is on the reconstruction of the city, the walls that were broken down, the gates that were in disrepair. So Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the, the walls of the city. So like you know, we saw last week, there were the, the three returns from exile. And so Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, we got different prophets that are... On the scene of the time, there was Haggai and Zechariah that were coming during the time of the rebuilding of the temple when people were feeling like, man, this is, this is going to be too much for us. They're there to kind of give the word of the Lord and encouragement as well. We see in that gap between Zerubbabel and Ezra is when the story of Esther takes place. And then there's a bit of a gap between Ezra and Nehemiah's time. And uh, so that's where we're at right now, Nehemiah. And here's the outline that we're going to be looking at really as we break this book down into just kind of two parts. First of all, the reconstruction of a city, chapters 1 to 7, and then the revival of a people, chapter 8 to 13 to the end of the book. So the reconstruction of a city and the revival of a people. And like I said, the book of Nehemiah just gives us this great and a wonderful example of godly leadership, the kind of, of leadership that inspires but also perspires. Because there we're going to see Nehemiah right in the midst of it all, taking part in, in serving, taking part in, in construction work. He's not just telling the people what to do, but he's leading by example. So we get a good glimpse of his heart right here in the first chapter. In fact, let's just kind of read through the first chapter to give us just a, a good context now um, and just sort of get us up to speed here with what's going on. So let's read through this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So again, there's Nehemiah. He's in you know, Babylon. He's serving the king, Artaxerxes, uh, the king of the time. And there's men that have come back from Jerusalem now to give a report as to what's going on. Verse 3. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. 
So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayers of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So, as we saw last week, the temple's been rebuilt, all right? Under Zerubbabel's leadership, temple's been rebuilt. Worship has been restored and people are getting right with God as Ezra came onto the scene and began just to uh, instill into them again God's word. And so it's been awesome. But as we see a bit more clearly now, as some time has passed, we see that the city is still in disrepair. That the walls are still, you know, in, in just ruins. Uh, there's no gates there. They're left broken down and the people are just kind of sitting open. And vulnerable to the enemy, in a sense. You know, it can be like that a lot at times in our own lives, can't it? Where, you know, we can come to church, we can worship, we can have a lot of things going on, a lot of things set up where we feel like, oh, everything's great and good and all, but we're good at putting on a good front, right? And yet, we fail to deal with the areas in our lives that are perhaps broken down or are in disrepair. Perhaps there's areas that we haven't built up a defense solely where we're still left open to the enemy and that oftentimes leaves us weak and worried that's how it's going right now for the people in jerusalem as this report comes back to nehemiah we need to take stock of our lives just because you know we might have a lot of things in place the temple's there uh worship's going on we've been kind of undergoing a bit of you know a, a renewal reformation yet there's still work to be done there's still things that are in disrepair that are leaving them weak and vulnerable to the enemy and it can be that way in our lives a lot of times too if we're not again building ourselves up in the lord in his word making sure that we're standing guard in a sense and so notice how nehemiah responds to this now we've read through it here but let's look at a few points here just to draw out here uh, of how he handled this first of all nehemiah was troubled he hears the word that's going on, and he's troubled over this. He's grieved over the situation at hand in Judah. Because again, he sees and he hears that the, the walls are broken down, the areas of disrepair uh, are, are not being dealt with, right? So he's grieving over that. And, and like it is in our lives, those, those areas that are, are broken down, that are kind of in, in ruins, we sh that should be concerning to us. Because like I said, otherwise, we just become open and vulnerable to the enemy. Have concern for the things that are out of order and not in line with what God would have for you. Like Nehemiah, he's concerned, he's troubled over it. And how we need to be careful, we're not just kind of turning a blind eye to things and going, ah, it's no big deal. That's not really an issue. But to say, if this is not in line with God and what you have for me, I want to be troubled over that. I want to get that right. Listen to what Alan Redpath said. He said this, let us learn this lesson from Nehemiah. You never lighten the load unless you first have felt the pressure of your, in your own soul. You are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they really are. There's no other preparation for Christian work than that. Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he had to weep over the ruins. So having a, a heart that sees the need and, and, 
kind of being concerned about that, right? Secondly, we see Nehemiah prayed. That's what he did. When we're faced with a challenge, where do we turn? Where do you turn when, when trouble comes your way? May, may it be to the Lord. May, may he be our first retreat and not our last resort, as we like to say here, right? And notice, Nehemiah recognized that God is able because here's what he prays in verse 5, that he's a great and awesome God. Right away, he's just reminding himself, God, there's nothing too hard for you. You're a great and awesome God. I don't need to be concerned about this in a sense that I have no hope. Lord, there's hope in you. And so I am coming to you. I'm looking to you. We're turning to you, God, because you're the only one that's able to help in these times. And thirdly, we see that he confessed, verses 6 to 7. Nehemiah, he wasn't quick to defend. He's not quick to point the finger and judge other people and say, oh, man, well, that's their problem. They better get that straight. I'm sitting here in in Babylon, man. This isn't my deal. That's them over there. No, what does he say? He says, listen, my father's house and and I, like, we have sinned. We've been instrumental in this. We have a part to play in this. Nehemiah brings himself into this as well. He takes that role of, of humility and love for the people. And he identifies with them. It's another good sign of a leader. And lastly, we see he volunteers, verse 11. Nehemiah was a great leader because he was a man of action. He didn't pray. Okay, God, do something about this. Lord, just send somebody to help. No, basically Nehemiah saying, Lord, here am I, send me. Because what he's doing there in verse 11, he's asking God to give him favor before King Artaxerxes so that King Artaxerxes will allow Nehemiah to return back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah is basically saying, Lord, here I am. Will you give me favor with the king so that I can go and be instrumental in helping my people here? Man, that's a great leader. So chapter 2 here now opens up with a new date now. It's the month of Nisan. It's March or April. It's four months after he prayed that prayer in chapter 1. So a bit of time passes by, right? Four months can feel like a long time when you're waiting for answered prayer, right? Hey, four days feels like a long time. When you're praying and you're waiting for an answer, let alone four months. But understand something here, that God oftentimes is waiting to do a work in us. Not just fulfill our request or, or that kind of you know, prayer that we're praying. He's looking to do a work in us. God's typically never in as much of a hurry as we are, right? So prayer oftentimes becomes synonymous with patience and It's also to build in us that peace of the Lord. Learning to wait on the Lord. Learning to trust in the Lord. Learning to believe that God's got this. And I'm going to be most safest when I'm just giving my issues and problems to the Lord and resting in his hands. Isaiah 26.3 says, You'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that's oftentimes what God is desiring to do. Oh, he'd have no problem just giving you what you need, what you ask for. But oftentimes he's saying, that's not always going to be the most helpful thing. I want you to learn to just trust me, wait on me, build that, that patience, but also to know the peace that comes from the Lord as you look to him and trust in him. So one day while Nehemiah is just serving the king here, chapter two, there's a day he comes in and there's just that sad countenance on Nehemiah. He's just, he's troubled over all these things. He's been praying, he's been seeking the Lord, but he's saddened over the state uh, of his people and the city there in Jerusalem. And the king takes note of that, right? The king sees it, which is not a good thing because anyone that was serving the king that came in with that kind of low disposition or, or a sad countenance, that was basically, you know, uh, Grounds for capital punishment right there. Like, you were, you were toast, right? If that was the case here. So Nehemiah, you know, he just, he, he's coming in. The king is beginning to, to question him. And, and notice what Nehemiah says in verse 3 when the king, you know, says, what's going on with you? And the, Nehemiah says to the king in verse 3, chapter 2, may the king live forever. And I think what Nehemiah is really saying, king, let me live forever, please. Don't take this out on me right now, Okay. Let me share with you what's going on. And look at, let's, let's read here, verse chapter 2, verse 2. 
We'll read a few verses here. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, but said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, now just notice that right there. Here's the king saying, what do you request? And, and Nehemiah just in the moment just says, Lord, help me here with this. Give me some wisdom. And he gives the response to the king. You know, our prayers don't need to be long and drawn out oftentimes. Because Nehemiah right here is just like, quick response. Lord, just speak to me right now. And he gives us a response. If he had prayed what he did in chapter one, the king probably would have said, no, I'm done with you. Take him out, you know, you're, you're gone, right? But here he just prays quickly, responds. And he said to the king in verse five, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. So here's the thing is that Nehemiah is bringing these things to the king, but understand something. The king is being very generous and very gracious. But remember what Proverbs 21 once says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. We see again that the Lord is ultimately in control, leading all these things together. And this actually is going to set up for us now. As the king gives his decree, verse 8, he's going to give some letters to Nehemiah to go. And, and verse 9 there, he's, he's basically giving this decree for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the city walls, which is setting up for us what God has already established in Daniel chapter 9, the 70-week prophecy for God's people, all right? And so this is all just kind of lining up with what God has already set in place in his word here. So very interesting. You might be wondering, 70-week prophecy, Daniel 9, what are you talking about? Well, we'll get there soon enough, okay? A couple more weeks, I think, we'll be... No, not a couple more weeks, but we'll get to Daniel soon here. And uh, that's going to be a fun study as well on Wednesday night. Nevertheless, jump down to verse 11 of chapter 12. So, sorry, chapter 2. Thank you. Woo, that was a big jump. You're like, I got stuff to go do. All right, no, I'm good. Chapter 2, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. So Nehemiah, he makes his way to Jerusalem. All right. It's about a three-month trek. And notice, when he gets there, he just takes some time to just kind of, kind of rest, right? Uh, I was there three days before he really does anything. It's been a long journey. He's weary. So he just takes some time to, to rest, to recuperate before he gets busy again. And Nehemiah acts as a wise leader here. Because what is he doing? He doesn't rush into action mode or make a decision. He doesn't start giving direction to people. Okay, what I need you to do is do this. And I need you to get this group over here. Let's get uh, this part taken care of. He doesn't spring into just action and delegating and decisions. He takes some time to survey the situation. Right? He goes out just to look at the situation at hand. And he does so at night. So, first of all, so as not to wake up the enemy needlessly perhaps and get them kind of rattled as to what's going on. What are these people doing? And also, not to just overwhelm the people. If Nehemiah came in, he's just quick to start throwing out orders and, and, and getting you know construction teams together. That might have been a little bit, oh my goodness, this is a little much right now. He's surveying the situation. He's doing so in secrecy as not to uh, rattle any enemy or overwhelm any people here. He's not rushing into work blindly. Proverbs 18 verse 13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. And so though Nehemiah doesn't have to necessarily answer a matter, he's wanting to make the right decisions. And so he's not jumping into it. He's taking his time to just understand the situation at hand. Very wise to do that. So as Nehemiah surveys the situation, 
He's got now a more clear picture as to what's going on or what needs to be done. So now he begins to gather the people together to share his his vision for the work and encourage the people to get busy. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we as servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Notice what we see going on here. As soon as they're ready to step out and do a work for God, they're hit with opposition. The enemy is right there to confront them and to bring about this kind of conflict so as to stop the work of God from unfolding. The enemy is right there to bring doubt, confusion, opposition. But understand, whatever the enemy might throw at us, We've got a much bigger God on our side. And he's the one, just as Nehemiah says in verse 20, that he's the one that will cause us to prosper. So when you feel God is calling you to do something, don't worry about the opposition, the obstacles that might be lying ahead. When God's calling you, step out in faith and say, we're going to get busy and build. We're going to do this, regardless of what the opposition might be saying or doing. Know that it's God that's going to, Bring about that work to fruition and cause it to prosper. So as we move into chapter 3, we see the work uh, of the rebuilding of the walls taking place. The gates getting, you know, restored here. We see this community effort taking place. Many families are involved in the work. As you just skim through chapter 3, you'll see all these different names and just the work that they're doing. And the lesson is clear for us here. That the body needs to work together to accomplish the work of the Lord. The body of Christ, the church, right? In other words, we all have a part to play in this. We all have a role that we can fulfill in seeing God's work come together and unfold. And so here in chapter 3, many different people with different talents, backgrounds, different experiences, all participating in the work. We see uh, Eliashab, the high priest in verse 1. The high priest who may have thought, listen, this isn't this is my work, man. Come on. I'm serving in the temple. I can't get my hands dirty with this stuff. This isn't, this is, no. This is not for me. This is below my pay grade here. No way. But no, he's active. He's serving. He's getting busy. He's not thinking that he's too high for this. He's active in this. Uziel, verse eight. We see Uziel, the goldsmith. And then also in verse eight, Hanani, the perfumer. All right, the one that's standing at the counter spraying you as you walk by in your shopping trip, right? The perfumers there, and they're taking part in the work of rebuilding the walls around the city. Verses 9 and then verse 12, 16 and 19, we see different leaders of districts that are all, again, taking part. So we see that there's many different people, different experiences, different skills. They're taking part saying, listen, we're together in this. We're together in this. And, and if we want to see God's work come together, then we want to get active and busy and take part in that building. And that's what exactly they're doing. Listen, when it comes to the church, you know, the wall that you look around, the, 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 the structure, everything, it, it might be 95% complete, but if there's some gaps or breakdowns in the wall, we all suffer because of it. And it takes the church all participating in the work to ensure we are carrying out God's work effectively. And, and, and you can say, you know, the wall can be even just the people when there's gaps, when there's breakdowns, even in, in our midst, how we need to come alongside and be a support and help. But know that we all have a part to play in these things. Perhaps you've read the report, Who Does the Work in America? Of the 200 million Americans, 84 million are over the age of 60, leaving 116 million people to do the work. But of those 116 million, 
75 million Americans are under the age of 20, leaving 41 million to do the work. Of those 41 million, 22 million are unemployed, leaving 19 million people to do the work. Of those 19 million people, 4 million are in the armed forces, leaving 15 million to do the work. Of the remaining 15 million, 14 million 800,000 people are employed by the government, leaving just 200,000 folks to do the work. Of those 200,000 Americans, 188,000 are in insane asylums, leaving 12,000 people to do the work. Of the remaining 12,000, 11,998 have committed crimes and are in penitentiaries, leaving just two of us to do the work. And I'm tired of doing all the work, right? So that's how it can feel sometimes. Feels like everybody's out doing their thing, but nobody's really taking part in doing the work, right? But when we work together, when we ensure that the wall is being secure, that relationships are, are intact, we're going to be able to do that much more of a fruitful work for the Lord. I love what we read at the beginning uh, of these, many of these verses in chapter 3. You know, just look at, at, at verse 4. And next to them. Verse 5. Next to them. Verse 7. And next to them. Verse 8. Next to him. What do we see here? We see that this is what makes a good community that we just link up next to others. Because there's strength in numbers and there's power in unity. And as we are seeing the, the common goal of God's work, making Jesus known, seeing people saved and seeing people growing in their faith in the Lord, that we can just link up with one another to see that work carry on and unfold. Ephesians 4.16 says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies... According to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's what we're called to be as the church. And we see that kind of being played out here in what Nehemiah is seeking to do in the city and with the people rallying them together to take part in the work. Well, in chapter four, we see Sanballat continue on rising up in opposition, like I said, when you're stepping out to do a work of the Lord, you can be sure that the enemy is going to be right there to try to stop it and thwart it. And just because you might deal with him one time, don't think that he's not going to try to return with a different tactic. And we see him doing just that. Satan is at work. It's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and not just tripping up people, but trying to stop or prevent God's work from going forth. We saw that in the book of Ezra when Ezra came in and they're, they're looking to, or when Zerubbabel was there trying to you know, build that temple again and, and how the people were mocking that and challenging it, trying to bring opposition, enemies of Israel, trying to put a stop to it. Well, Sanballat here, he's a, he's a government official in Samaria and his name means Hate in disguise. I think that's a very fitting picture of our enemy, Satan, as well, that just hates to see anybody walking with the Lord or a work going out for the Lord. And he's going to come in by disguise to do whatever he can to try to trip that up. Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But it so happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah in verse 3, the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. See, the enemy loves to mock and ridicule whatever you're setting out to do for God. You can be sure of that. And we don't like getting mocked too often. <laughs> At least I can say that about myself. I don't enjoy being mocked. I like to mock sometimes, but getting mocked is a different story. It's something that digs deep into your flesh. It hits a nerve. It's a tactic that we've learned early on in life. You see it played out on, on childhood or, or playgrounds among children. You know, It's easier sometimes, I think, to take a shot to the face than it is to be laughed at, to be mocked at. And it's often the way that the enemy will come at you to stop the work that you're doing for the Lord. 
make you think that you're just so ridiculous for ever thinking that or deciding to do that, taking that step. It just it makes you think you're, you're, you're so foolish for doing so, bringing ridicule and mocking. It's exactly what the enemy would seek to do in our lives. Well, it's something that we can expect, can't we? It's something that we can expect to have happen. Opposition coming. In fact, I think we can look at these things and go, if I'm living my life where I'm not experiencing some opposition, I should be questioning, why is that? Am I stepping out for the Lord? Am I being used of the Lord? Because there's going to be, if we're doing those things, there's naturally just going to be that kind of opposition. Don't go looking for it. I'm not saying, you know, try to make it happen, but it should be a natural byproduct of us being used to the Lord, just serving the Lord, living for the Lord. So Sanballat and these people are doing just that. It's a, it's a device, ridicule, mockery. It's, it's a device used by ignorant people who are filled with jealousy and bitterness. And that's what we see with Sanballat ultimately. But look at what, what he's doing, Sanballat. Here's how he's mocking the people here. Or sorry, he, he's, he's mocking the people, saying they're all feeble Jews. He's mocking their plan, saying, what, are you going to fortify yourselves, basically? He's mocking their hope about offering sacrifices, mocking their ability I think they're going to complete this in a day. He's mocking their materials. These are stones that are burned. He's not leaving any you know, stone unturned here ultimately in, in the attacks and the mocking going out there. And then Tobiah just throws some insult to injury with what he says in verse 3 that, listen, he might even have a little fox run on that and it's just going to come falling down. This isn't worthwhile what they're doing. But notice how Nehemiah responds. Again, in verse 4, chapter 4, he just prays. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads. Give them as plunder to a land of captivity. He just kind of says, Lord, you take care of that. You deal with them, Lord. He just gives it over to the Lord. And as they pray, they're just energized to keep going. They had a mind to work. Now, most of us would just like a mind that works, but they've got a mind that is just set to do the work. A mind to work is... Also very needed, right? Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody in the church just had a mind to work? Just like it says in, at the end of verse 6. The people had a mind to work at the end of verse 6 there. So many people are, are sidelined because of various things the enemy has thrown their way to, to hinder their efforts, to trip them up, to stop them from stepping out for the Lord. We too often buy into the excuses And you see, the enemy is doing all he can to discourage us, to dissuade us, and to distract us. And if he can get us disheartened in the work, then he knows he's succeeding because the work will inevitably stop. That's why we need to press on by faith. We have a different drive and different attitude when we press on in faith rather than sight because the the visual that we have is not always going to be picture perfect or glorious. We step out in faith and say, God, I know that you can do great things through this. And that's why the enemy wants to get engaged in conflict. It puts our sights upon the physical, upon the things that are happening before us. It leaves us disheartened and it impedes progress. But Nehemiah, he just turns it over to the Lord. He puts his trust in the Lord and moves forward in faith with a mind and a heart to work. And just to carry out this before the Lord. Now, when the mocking wasn't taking effect and Sanballat and his posse sees that these guys aren't stopping, well, then they resort to intimidation now. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Now, it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So now they're just taking further action. We're not just going to be working, we're going to be watching. We're going to put a set out there, a set, a guard at night. We're going to be sure that these guys aren't going to be able to 
carry out any of these plans that they're choosing to do. Now, oftentimes the enemy is looking to bring discouragement into our midst, right? And when that happens, like I said, the work becomes stalled, if not just hindered completely. Because, again, we're no longer seeing what God is able to do. We're getting our, our, our focus on things that we don't need to have it focused on rather than just focusing on the Lord. Now, the people of Judah in, in chapter 4, verse 10, you see this kind of happening. They're getting stalled. It says in verse 10 that Judah said the strength of the laborers is failing. And there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. So what's happening here? Well, the people are, are beginning to listen a little too intently to what the enemy is saying. Because now they're identifying all the stuff here. It's just rubbish. That's what the enemy said in verse 2. They're beginning to listen to what the enemy is saying. They're beginning to be discouraged at what's before them. Rather than looking at what God desires to accomplish through them. There's so much rubbish, they say. But you know, it's these stones, this rubbish that is going to be built up again and provide the walls for the city. There might be things in your life that you look at and you go, man, that's just a bunch of rubbish. God can't do anything with that. And that's exactly what the enemy would love you to think. But you know, whatever you've got in your life, regardless of what value you think it has, regardless of what strength maybe you think it has, now, when we give that over to the Lord, understand that God is able to do great things with that and use that and raise that up to accomplish his work. Look to the Lord by faith and see what he's able to do through that because these very things that they're calling rubbish are going to be the very things that are going to build the walls and secure the city for them. So as the enemy, as the enemy's taunts continue to come in, Here's what Nehemiah says there at the end of verse 14 or kind of in the middle of verse 14. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. How we need to be sure we are remembering what God is able to do. Nehemiah says, listen, guys, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Sometimes we just, we just really need to remind ourselves to, to remember the Lord. Remember what he's able to do. Remember that we serve, like Nehemiah said in chapter 1, a great and awesome God. That nothing, nothing is too great for him to do. Reading on in verse 15, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. That's great. I love this scene here. So Nehemiah just says, okay, guys, half of you are going to get busy building. Half of you are going to be there just battling. Being aware of the enemy's ploys and plans and plots, and you're going to be there on guard. Some are working, others are watching, but all are working together to see the work of the Lord just continue on and unfold. And that's often how it needs to be for us sometimes. Building and battling, knowing that there's an enemy that's looking to devour and how we need to be on guard and do business, but then just continue on working and seeing what God is going to accomplish and do. Well, in chapter 5, we see more difficulty ensue. Only this time, it comes from within the ranks of those in Judah, not from the enemy. There's a financial strain that begins to cause some strife. Jew began to exploit Jews and the rich began to treat the poor unfairly. You know, the enemy knows that if he can't devour you from outwardly, he's going to look to come in and bring disunity from the inside, right? If you can't devour from the outside, you look to bring disunity from the inside and try to tear you apart from the inside. That's why our unity is so important. Jesus in his great... You know, prayer in John 17 prayed exactly for that, for that unity. See, when we begin to squabble and backbite, we play right into the enemy's hands. 
and how we need to be on guard from that. So Nehemiah leads through the struggle. The people respond well. Things get back on track. But then, but then we get back to Sanballat, chapter 6 again. And now, he's none too happy that the wall is nearing completion. All right? He's still trying to prevent this from happening. He's not giving up. Understand that the enemy doesn't want to give up too easily. Just because he might be silent one day doesn't mean he's not going to be on the prowl the next day. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, although at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. That should be a clue. If you have to meet in the, vill- in the town of Ono, don't go, right? That should be a clue right there. But he knew they planned to do him harm. So, Nehemiah says, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? See, Nehemiah wasn't going to get pulled into a fight that he didn't need to fight. He wasn't going to allow distractions to get in the way now of the work that he was doing. I love how Nehemiah responds because he says, I'm doing a great work. Why should this cease now just for me to come and see you? You know, it's very easy, isn't it, to get distracted with other things. And, and understand something. Things that might even seem worthy, worthwhile, or even profitable. Things that we might feel justified taking part in. But what we have to look at and see is, God, what's the greater work here? What's the great work that you want me to be involved in and active in? Nehemiah saw that what he was doing was the great work. And there wasn't anything that was going to pull him away from doing that, regardless of what other work might look like. Nehemiah knew he could turn everything else aside because he was involved in doing the Lord's work, the great work. And here's a a key verse now in Nehemiah, chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days, think about that. It took him 52 days to raise the rubble, right? To build the walls, to secure the gates now, to see the city once more fortified and secure. 52 days, that's a a significant work that took place. An amazing work and and accomplished in an amazing time. I I I can't even fathom that, 52 days, wow. But again, here's some keys to all this that we see from what we've looked at so far. First of all, Nehemiah was called. He knew what God was leading him to do. Secondly, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We see that, in, we see that also in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 4. Nehemiah and others had a mind to work. Chapter 4, verse 6. They just determined, we're going to get busy and do this. And lastly, Nehemiah resisted the enemy But here's the real key to their success. Those are all certainly playing into this. These are important. This is worthwhile stuff. But just look at the next verse. Verse 16 of chapter 6. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. That's the real key right there to seeing the work done. There's no substitute for a work being of God. No amount of labor, skill, effort, or wisdom can ever produce the work that God is able to accomplish when we remain just simply pliable in his hands. There's nothing else that could ever compare or measure up. It's what we read in in, in Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That was being said when Zerubbabel is facing the daunting task of rebuilding the temple. And they thought, how can we do that? And what does God say to him? Listen, it's not going to be by your might or your effort or your power. It's going to come about through me. It's going to be by my spirit at work in and through you. Accomplishing what I desire to do. That's always the way it is. Oh, may we be sure and certain that we are a people that are not striving in the flesh, 
and trying to manufacture the work, but rather saying, God, if you're calling me to do this, Lord, would you do the work through me? May I just remain pliable in your hands that you can do what you desire in and through me. But I know, Lord, it's not going to be through my wisdom, ability, my effort, my strength. It's going to be through your spirit that's going to accomplish that. May that be the case for our church and all that we do. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Well, chapter 7, chapter 7, the, the bulk of it is really just detailing. And what's interesting is chapter 7 is almost identical to what we see in Ezra chapter 2. That just records the people that were coming back from Babylon under Zerubbabel's leadership. And so Nehemiah 7 just lists a bunch of families and the numbers that are coming back with them chapter 8 now takes us into the second part of the book where we've seen the reconstruction of a city but now in chapter 8 to 13 we see the revival of a people the revival of a people and and there's there's a good civil strength within the city there needed to be a spiritual strength now within the people the city's intact but now We need to see that the people are walking in a greater spiritual depth with the Lord. Construction was done. Now comes consecration for the people. So here in this chapter, we see a great revival taking place. Ezra comes back on the scene. All right. He's a contemporary with Nehemiah here. He comes on the scene as the people call for him. He's a scribe, right? So he's, he's, uh, you know, got a handle on God's word. And they call for him to come with the book of the law. And so Ezra begins to pour into them in chapter 8. You know, it's been said, revival is when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and works in the people of God. And that's exactly what we're going to be seeing happen here in chapter 8. Let's read a few verses. Chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Matt, uh, all those people. And then verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. All the, No, you don't have to. Okay, I was wondering if anybody would actually do it. You don't have to do it. Just continue in your sin. That's okay. So, and Ezra blessed the Lord. <laughs> I'm kidding. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, and those guys, they helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. How cool is that, right? Here's Ezra. He's being called Ezra. Bring the book of the law. So Ezra, they build a platform of wood. He stands there before the people now. And he gives a study, a Bible study, like for six hours, basically. And he just goes through the word of God. And they just give the sense of it. They give the understanding of it. I love that. You know, God has raised up leaders, preachers, teachers to do just that. Now, there might be times where, where you're reading through God's word and you're like, man, I don't understand that. And, and thankfully, God's given people. Now, he's given us his Holy Spirit, no doubt, to illuminate these truths for us. And as we read through, we trust that God is just enlightening that to us and making it, making it very clear. But he's also put people in positions where they're able to study through and, and it continues to pour out the sense and understanding of that. And notice their response there in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. You might think, what? That's kind of a weird response. 
I, I, would, I would feel pretty weird if after I give a sermon, everybody's just sitting there crying. You know, I'm like, I know it's not very great, guys, but give me a chance here, right? A little grace here. I mean, that would be kind of a, a weird response, but understand what's happening here. Because, again, they're just being convicted by the truth of God's word. No doubt they've been working through Genesis to Deuteronomy and perhaps hitting right there in Deuteronomy 28 when God pronounced the blessings upon a people that were obedient to him, but also the cursings when they were disobedient. And perhaps they're being confronted again with some of these shortcomings they've been involved in. And so there's just this, this natural feeling of grief and, and, and kind of repentance in a sense, recognizing how far they've kind of fallen from God's word here. But look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that great? That's a verse we've all heard. Maybe you didn't know it was there in Nehemiah, but here it is. Nehemiah 8.10, a great verse. Nehemiah says to them, hold off on your weeping. Let this day be set apart to the Lord for rejoicing. Why? Because God is good. He has blessed us. And it's in the joy of the Lord, joy in the Lord, that will strengthen you today. You know, most definitely the word can be convicting. And there are times where, where we should weep, where we recognize, you know, where we've gotten away from God's word. But in this day, as Nehemiah is bringing the people together, it was a day to rejoice, to see God's goodness at work in their lives. The end goal for us going through God's word is always so that we can see what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. That's always what we are seeking to look to. And when we begin to get a greater glimpse of God's grace and the forgiveness of sin, the redemption we have in and through Jesus Christ, that we are children of God with eternal life in him, I'll tell you, that should cause us to walk out of here leaping, rejoicing with gladness in our heart, with joy in the Lord. And that should strengthen us. Amen? Because I see a lot of people... Believers walking around who haven't got there yet. We're walking around thinking, man, I'm such a failure. Oh, man, I'm just such a mess up. And they're just zapped of joy. They're zapped of strength. Because they're dwelling upon all that they've done. Instead of dwelling on all that Jesus has done for them. And being filled with just joy. At the grace of the Lord, the forgiveness. The work that he has completed for us. The hope of heaven that we have. We as Christians should be the most smiling, joyful people that the world sees. Because we've got what they don't have. We've got hope. We've got assurance. We've got the reality and the fullness of life. And that should be strengthening to us. So even so, when, when, when trouble comes, we recognize, oh man, that's just temporary. When hardships come, you know, man, God's on my side. I don't need to fret over this. We should be walking in joy and allowing that to be our strength. And that's what Nehemiah encourages the people. Don't, don't weep. Go from here feasting, rejoicing in gladness because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Be joyful in Jesus. Chapter 8 really reveals this revival taking place in the hearts of God's people. And, and understand something though we can't manufacture or duplicate, you know, kind of an outpouring of God's spirit by just sort of repeating certain formulas here there's some real keys in this chapter to ensuring a life that's given over to the lord in a way where his blessings are not going to be far from us look at what we see just in this chapter they were in one accord they were together verse one they were in the word they're repentant but they're glad they're sharing and and as 
we see at the end of chapter 8, they're expecting, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They're just expecting, again, God's provision and care and goodness. It's a similar model to what we see in the early church in Acts chapter 2, where revival just hit upon them. They're in one accord. They were focused on the word of God. There was gladness among the church. They were sharing. They were expecting the soon return of the Lord. There was great revival taking place. And it's a similar model to what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Well, moving along, chapter 9. How are we doing here for time? Okay, chapter 9. Look at verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So like I said, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of chapter eight. And that was accompanied by the reading of God's word. And the people were once again moved to just this attitude of repentance. And now this was the time to come together in that place of just confession and repentance. All right. So notice what we see here. They, they read the word. It says that they did so for one fourth of the day. And then for another fourth of the day, they confessed and worshiped the Lord. They read the word and that one fourth of the day was about Three hours. So they read the word for three hours and they worshiped for three hours. And you think our services can get pretty long here? Six hours. How about that, right? Yeah, there you go. Shelly's ready for it. Everybody else is going, tone it down, Shelly. Okay. <laughs> so what we see happening here, this all led to just a great, now in chapter 9, a great prayer of confession, ultimately. Chapter 9 lays out for us the longest prayer in the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 9, longest prayer in the Bible. And it recalls now God's faithfulness throughout Israel's history, especially during their kind of, you know, waywardness in a sense. Even in the midst of their waywardness, God was still faithful. So here's this prayer. And basically, just to outline this prayer for you here, we see, first of all, starting with creation in verse 6. Then leading through the call of Abraham and the covenant God made with him, hitting the exodus out of Egypt and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Verse 15 details God's provision in the wilderness. Israel's frequent rebellion then is brought up uh, when they're traveling through the wilderness and, and it's contrasted with God's grace and goodness for them. Verses 22 to 25 goes through the conquest of Canaan. Then the era of the judges, then refusal to listen and obey, and then eventual captivity that they were taken into there. But verses 32 to 37, here's this appeal now for forgiveness and just deliverance from the consequences of captivity. And then in verse 38 of chapter 9, we see the people ready just to kind of renew or, or, or make sure this covenant before the Lord. And then chapter 10 begins to go through all these families that came together to take part in just sealing the covenant there. All right? So that's skipping through all of that. The covenant then was sealed in chapter 10, takes us to chapter 11. Now chapters 11 and 12 detail the situation that's taking place in Jerusalem because there were still a lot of people not living in the city of Jerusalem. All right? The the walls have been built up. The gates are in place. It's secured. But now we need people to continue to make sure that, you know, this is going to remain intact and, and safe in a sense here. And so Nehemiah begins to call people to come back in Jerusalem. And basically what he does is he sets up a tithe. Not of money, but of people. He says, one in ten of you that are living outside the city are going to move into the city and dwell and live in the city. So one-tenth are called to come in and live inside the city and inside the walls. And then once these things are in place, Nehemiah dedicates the wall. And again, there's some great rejoicing and singing going on. Chapter 12, verses 27 to 28, just details all that. Let's look at that there. Chapter 12, verse 27. 
Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nethophathites. Oh boy, that's a big word there. So here's just what we see happening. The dedication of the wall, there's just rejoicing, there's just worship, there's thanksgiving going on as people just have kind of that holy hoedown going down now in, in Jerusalem. Now, taking us right to chapter 13, the, the last of the chapters here in Nehemiah. We see in chapter 13 that there's some things that are amiss. And you might think, how in the world is this possible after all that's unfolded? Well, understand, Nehemiah has returned back to Shushan, the city there in Babylon that he was originally at. He returns there for a time and then comes back now to Jerusalem. And as he comes back to Jerusalem, he sees that there's some problems that have been going on. See, when Nehemiah returns for a second term as a governor of Judea, as he was, he finds that the Jews' old enemy, Tobiah, has actually been provided guest quarters in the temple compound itself. He also learns that services at the temple have been abandoned. God's tithes haven't been paid. And the Levites who served at the temple have been forced to go back to work in their farms in the countryside. And he finds that people are working on the Sabbath, and at Jerusalem, the holy day of rest has been transformed into a market day. Crazy stuff going on. And not only that, but now there's been some men that have been intermarrying people, taking foreign wives. Even some of the sons of the high priest have been doing so. Nehemiah vigorously corrects each abuse, calling on God to remember his faithful service and the priests who defile their office. It's a sad situation unfolding. But Nehemiah deals with this. Here's again, just as a quick breakdown, the issues that are being abused here that are addressed in chapter 13. Tithing, Sabbath, and intermarriage. And Nehemiah knows how easy it is for people to turn away from devotion to the Lord so he deals seriously with these things. Look at chapter 13, verse 20. He says, it says, Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Nehemiah, and he's not talking about, I'm going to pray for you, lay hands on you. No, he's like, I'm going to lay hands on you in a way that you're not going to enjoy too much. He's like ready to like really take matters in his own hands and say, I want to make sure that this stuff does not continue on. And then, verse 23. And in those days I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to the sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. I mean... Yikes, right? Nehemiah is a man of action, isn't he? And he's like, he's striking some of them. He's pulling out some of their hair. He's like, you guys, be careful that you don't cross the line, that you don't get yourself involved in things that are not of God because it is going to hurt you and it's going to hurt us. Understand, they've just been taken away into exile because of these very things. Now, what's really interesting here is that Nehemiah is really the last book in the chronology of the Old Testament. This is where Old Testament chronology ends for us, is in the book of Nehemiah. All the remaining 23 books that we'll be getting to fit somewhere in between that timeline of Genesis to Nehemiah. This means that this book leads us into those 400 silent years before Christ comes onto the scene. Now, if the people had have reverted back so quickly in Nehemiah's absence to kind of disobeying God's word, what's going to happen after 400 years? Well, here's what's really interesting. Because as the New Testament opens up, we see the religious leaders now who have 
seem to have followed Nehemiah's counsel, but have done so kind of going overboard. Because it's the religious leaders, again, like I said, that have oftentimes been coming in confrontation or opposition to Jesus. But what they were doing was they were trying to uphold God's law so much so to say, we want to be so careful that we don't overstep our grounds in any way. So what did they do? They began to tithe on just the simplest, even the smallest other spices. They would be so sure to, to separate and to tithe. Smallest other, other spices. They saw the Sabbath as such a day that you don't do anything. That they got angry with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And they began to take this idea of being separate to extreme lengths. To where they said, we don't want anything to do with Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. They despised the Gentiles. They saw the Gentiles as unclean. So what they did is they began to follow these three things to the extreme, to the point where no longer were they just keeping the letter of the law, or they were keeping the letter of the law, but they were failing to just understand the heart of the law. And more so, they failed to have a heart that was in line to the Father's heart. They began to walk in in legalism. They began to go to the extremes of these things. So it's interesting that we see in these 400 years that there was this idea of, okay, we've got to maintain these things, but... It went beyond what God ever designed and, and desired. And, and just how is a good lesson for us to be sure that we just stay free from legalism and ritual. And that we live in just simple devotion to God. That we're sure that we have our heart in line with the Father's heart. That we know the Father's heart. We know that by just spending time with the Lord. Being devoted to the Lord, being in God's word as we see, you know, happening in Nehemiah. They, they got the word of God out. They spent time understanding it, allowing the spirit to lead them. And let's be sure that we're those that are allowing the spirit of God to take the word of God to transform our hearts as well. All right. So that's the book of Nehemiah. I think we'll wrap it up right there. Um, boy, lots of things you could say. Uh, about Nehemiah. It's a great book, but that hopefully gives us a real good kind of overview as to what's going on and and a few lessons we can take home here tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you, God, for um, tonight and, and for the people that you brought out and just for this time that we can spend just looking in your word and learning of you and, and, and for a man like Nehemiah who just gives us such great lessons of, of, of leadership and, and things that we can put into action. I pray that we would see the place that we all need to play just in the body of Christ coming together, lining up alongside one another to carry out your work, God. And what a blessing it is when we do. And I pray that we would do so from just a place of devotion unto you, Lord, that we never begin to fall into a place of, of legalism or ritual, but that our hearts would stay soft and just in sync with, with you, God. So lead us now, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.